Hello folks, I'm Simon Ward and you are listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. This podcast, my website and my regular newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance by interpreting the science and then translating it into easy to understand lessons for you. If you enjoy the podcast, I've created a membership program which allows me to provide you more in-depth exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performances to the next level. And at the end of the episode, I'll explain more about these benefits and let you know how you can join our growing tribe. Right, knees. I don't know about you, but I've had some issues with mine in the past. Three minor operations in 10 years to remove damaged cartilage have resulted in me being a little bit more cautious with some of the activities I like to do. It seems I'm not the only one. When I asked my Facebook tribe for questions to put to this week's guest, we were inundated. So in this week's episode, I'll be chatting with advanced practice physiotherapist and knee expert Damien Buck, who works at the Coach House Sports Physiotherapy Clinic in Leeds, as we talk about the topics that concern you, including how to keep your knees healthy as we get older, the benefits of mobility and strength work, and the best exercises for you to do, whether you should have surgery for a damaged meniscus, and if you do, how to rehab correctly. And finally, what if any supplements enhance your knee health? So, without further ado, let's get cracking and chat with Damien Buck. Oh, welcome to the show, Damien Buck. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. It's nice to be here, Simon. Thanks. Damien, the reason I invited you is uh, partly selfish and partly because I get asked a lot as a coach about knees. Um, and you are, um, according to some of my other uh, physio contacts, Alison Rose and, and John Swain and, uh, and Graham and all the folks at um, Coach House, um, you are the knee expert. Um, and particularly when it comes to, you know, diagnosing these things and then rehabilitating people after surgery. So um, before we came on, I, I took the opportunity to tell people that I was going to be chatting with you and ask if they'd got any questions. To be to be frank, I was overwhelmed by the number of questions, as you probably were when you saw that list I sent you. But um, let's let's do our best to try and answer people's questions, shall we? And if and if um, we need to come back, then maybe maybe we should do that. Maybe bust a few myths out there and um, yeah, see, yeah. See where we go. Well. Yeah. Ma- Maybe we could start off with the first question. So uh, this is a friend of mine, James Franco. James just wanted to know, well, why do our knees wear out uh, so much sooner than the rest of our body? Um, I suppose it's quite a reasonable question, isn't it? Um, but I guess there's a, probably a reasonable answer as well. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is a very reasonable question, yeah. Um, I mean, when we're thinking about knees, obviously a weight-bearing joint, and over a number of years that they do take a lot of pounding, whether that's through day-to-day life through exercise through jobs through trauma through injury um our kind of weight bearing joints do do take a bit of hammering um over our life um, hips and knees are obviously the main joints where we will tend to see more issues developing in terms of osteoarthritis and where people most joint replacements certainly lower limb are more hip and knee um, as opposed to the ankle joint where we you can have an ankle replacement, but it's much less common than a knee and a hip. Or I've lost you. Sorry. Lost you. Why? Why would the? Why would the ankles? I mean, obviously, I, I've heard this thing that when you land, if particularly if you're in high impact activity, 
four times your body weight is transmitted through those joints. So why would the why would the knees and the hips take more um, loading than the ankles, for instance? And why would why would they end up um, deteriorating faster than the ankles? Because the ankle doesn't seem to be as big or as, as, as stable a joint. Yeah, so it's a lot of it is to do with the articular cartilage. So the cartilage in the ankle okay. is different, uh, made up differently compared to the knee and the hip. So generally, osteoarthritis in the ankle, we will see that more post-trauma. So say if you've had a, a nasty ankle fracture or an injury several years ago, you're more likely to develop osteoarthritis after a, a trauma as opposed to the knee and the hip, where that might be something that just develops kind of over a period of time. And um, and there is lots of risk factors that, that mean you can develop like osteoarthritis in the knee, whether that is previous surgery, previous trauma, um, being overweight, that can have an impact as well. So if, you, if you've got a higher BMI, um, you can get this, there's more research being done now at this low level kind of systemic inflammatory process that goes on that then can uh, mean that a joint does become more painful. Um, so that that inflammatory process that you talked about i i do a lot of stuff on nutrition and i'm i'm acutely aware of the fact that the western diet these days has you know sees people consuming a lot of foods which can contribute to inflation inflammation does that does that contribute to the problem with the knees as well i mean diet as a whole is obviously important from just getting a nutritional balance um, across the board, maintaining a healthy balance, uh, maintaining a healthy diet. Whether that contributes specifically to arthritis, I'm not, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it's more the other things that, that I would kind of have linked before in terms of the kind of previous injuries and kind of uh, mm. the troubles that we may have had over the years. Um, but it's definitely, it can be a link definitely with with obesity and poor diet and that can then predispose you to more having joint problems yeah well we'll come back to nutrition a bit later because there's a few questions on supplementation and um yeah. you know if yeah. there's if there's foods or supplements you can take that might help protect your knees but um the majority of listeners that i have are an endurance athletes um a lot of them are triathletes and uh i i, I can recall uh, a comment for some physios that were at the Triathlon Performance Centre in Bath right at the beginning of when British Triathlon had performance centres. And these physios were used to dealing with runners and had some experience with cyclists. But what they what they observed in triathletes was that there were knee injuries or, or knee issues, niggles and aches mostly rather than injuries, that were developing that they didn't see in either cyclists or, or runners who were purely in those sports and wondering if if it was the combination of those two sports and maybe um movement or restricted movement around the hip that then led to problems with the knees have, have you noticed anything similar yeah definitely i mean there's there's certainly if you're thinking about the biomechanics of the different um, activities that people will do with triathlons um there's definitely a link or a close link between how the hip works and the impact that that will have on the knee and then that's the same for the ankle and, and going further up as well so um certainly from my caseload where i predominantly see the uh, people struggling with knee problems the vast majority of my caseload and um, certainly uh, in a privately coach house would be runners i don't tend to see many cyclists i don't tend to see in hardly any swimmers with knee problems um, a big impact on that is going to be the joint reaction forces and 
the impact of the activity of running um, as opposed to uh, cycling and swimming where there's less impact and it's um, less of a not there's not as much demand going on the joint um, with those other two activities um, I, I guess my, ne my next point would be for something like uh, iliotibial band syndrome we often notice that we're getting this pain on the outside of the knee just below the knee on that little knobbly bit of bone but my understanding is a lot of that is caused by tightness in the hip yeah definitely so again a big link with itb and again if we're getting someone in with itb um, type symptoms our first job is to try and determine whether it is definitely the itb that's giving them symptoms or is it something else around the outside of the knee so itb would be one of the most common causes of lateral knee pain so pain on the outside of the knee um, but other causes could be a lateral meniscal tear. It could be the kneecap joint, so patellofemoral pain that's giving them pain on the outside. Mm. Uh, it could be coming from higher up, so it could be the hip. So anyone um, presenting with that type of symptoms would certainly want to check biomechanics and see how they're moving higher up in terms of the hip and see what the stability is like. Um, and then if it was related to ITB, then I mean, there's a whole debate about what actually causes ITB symptoms, it used to be thought that it was a bursa that kind of got inflamed and irritated underneath. More recent research has shown it's more kind of adipose kind of fatty tissue that gets compressed underneath the fat, underneath the fascia. Um, so then we're, we do a lot of work in terms of looking at training volume, training um, mm -hmm. mechanics and, and, and trying to manipulate that a little bit to settle symptoms down. But, um, biomechanics certainly plays a big role in that. It, it sort of brings me back to something we'll probably return to time and again in this conversation is if, if you're getting, you know, persistent knee pain, it's probably get be probably best getting it checked out by somebody like yourself um, for an expert diagnosis rather than using Facebook or Dr. Google. And it's probably yeah. also worth looking at your training volume over the last few weeks to see whether there's been any significant changes or big jumps in volume because those two things – well, not that, and that training volume and maybe muscle tightness around the hips or quads is it, probably got a significant contribution to any knee pain. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. Doctor Google is a dangerous place sometimes, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, training volume is massive with these type of things, and this time of year, so kind of leading up to spring marathon season, is a really busy time for us because we get lots of people that just end up breaking because of had a big spike in activity levels as a kind of increase in the volume for for spring marathons. Uh, and then knee pain is really common, whether that is ITB, anterior knee pain, two of the most common things that we would, that I'll see clinically. But then it's a race against time then to get them fit for, for the marathons kind of coming up in the next couple of months. So um, yeah. it keeps us well, I was going to say, if anybody had a conspiracy theories, they'd probably think that the physios had a charter for increasing training volume in either October or the spring, wouldn't they, to get a few more patients in the <laughs> yes, door? But, but, but I know also that um, you'd much prefer to be seeing healthy patients and keeping them healthy than you would to be trying to do that rush against time to get people back for the race. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you've seen them now and they've got, they've say, got up to 15, 16 miles on a training programme and then they've got they're kind of struggling mm. to run at all and then they've got just kind of six eight weeks to get fit for a marathon it's um yeah it's often a bit of a tight schedule sometimes when we get to this stage so i would always say 
get these things checked sooner rather than later because things like ITB and kneecap, anterior knee pain, patellofemoral pain, if you leave them to niggle, they can, yeah, they can be, the longer they go on, they can be a bit of a nightmare to settle down sometimes. So modifying activity, kind of getting someone to look at it and getting a bit of a plan for like, for um, for training volume, training methods can be, um, uh, can be beneficial. It, as a coach, I always think that if if you get a if you get a lower limb injury and you're a runner, that pretty much wipes out a lot of your training, doesn't it? At least if you're a triathlete, you can still swim and you can still cycle. And so when you've got issues that are in, that are in the lower limb, um, if you just leave them and think, well, they'll clear up when I have a recovery week or when I have a day off, they most likely won't. So being proactive is probably always the best option if you, you want to continue training and hit your goals. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely agree with that. There are um, obviously certain things we can put in place to try and um, amend training with certain pathologies. So going back to ITB, ITB symptoms are often worse running downhill. Um, so we could, you can look at doing more um, training on the flat or avoiding running downhill. Or um, patients often see with ITB type symptoms have a very narrow um, gait pattern, very very narrow running stance, kind of essentially or quite often with a crossover type running pattern, um, which will increase that, those compressive forces through the ITB. Um, and trail running can um, often exacerbate that a little bit. So if people enjoy trail running, it might be that we take them off the trails for a bit, and, um, which might help settle things down and then there's the old kind of debate about cadence as well and manipulating cadence and um, sometimes I've had some really um, good results with people that have struggled running but then kind of you can adjust cadence slightly and then, then that kind of helps settle things down so there's often a few things we can tweak but yeah you're, you're right if um, because of the impact again often if you if you if you're struggling to run, obviously, then that it's it can be difficult, especially if you're training for an event. That's that's a question that comes up quite regularly, isn't it? I know you mentioned it in some of our pre-conversations that um, people talking about running cadence and is there an optimal running cadence? Um, but then it depends on which expert you listen to because it's a big debate, isn't it? Yeah, it is definitely. Yeah, there's often this kind of magic number of 180 that people talk about that seems this kind of golden figure, which again is a bit of a myth. And I think it's definitely got to be on an individual basis and assessing someone's biomechanics or how they run. And not everyone needs to get up to that 180 figure, I don't think. Um, mm. But mm. I've had some good results kind of just manipulating cadence a little bit. And if they are overstriding, just increasing, say if someone came in with a step rate of 160 and I thought they were overstriding with anterior knee pain or ITV type symptoms, we may manipulate that to, um, by 5 to 10%. So say if it was 5% increasing them by eight, just eight steps a minute, and then that can make a difference in knee pain. Not everyone, but um, on an individual basis, we would, that would be assessed and it, it can make a difference. Um, so using something like a metronome is something I'll use um, really commonly in my, in my practice to work out cadence um, and then um, yeah, see uh, if we can change symptoms or change how someone runs by just gradually increasing that a little bit. Um, but yeah, not everyone needs to hit that magic number of 
of 180, I don't think. It's a little bit of a myth. So not something we need to worry about unless there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'd agree with that, I think. Um, mm. if, if you do overstride massively, whether that predisposes you a little bit more to kind of knee symptoms, so we know... Um, so the majority of runners will, will heel strike and with a heel strike and that does load your hip and your knee a little bit more as opposed to say a four foot type running pattern where um, that will load your Achilles and your calf a little bit more. So there is, if you, if, mm. as a four foot runner, so there's, there's pros and cons to both, but if you, if you do overstride and um, landing on a bit more of a kind of an extended knee, um, that potentially does mean that you are a little bit more susceptible to knee problems further mm. down the we're going, to, we're going to come on to training in just a moment. One, one more question I had. I know I know a few people say that when they stand up or when they bend the knee, they get these they get these pops and crackles. Um, and one of one of our listeners Zach, uh, asking is is this harmless or is it a prelude to something that's a bit more serious down the line? Yeah, so this is something we get asked a lot. Um, so generally, noises in the knee are very common and nothing to worry about at all. So especially kind of, I mean, it can be a few different things that causes kind of no, uh, noises from a knee, the majority of knees will click and, and often it's either just, it can be just a bit of air that pops in the, the joint. It can be different structures that move against each other. Um, often the kind of crepitus or the grating that people report is related to the kneecap joint. Um, so every time you bend and straighten your knee, the back of your kneecap is, it's like the bottom of a boat. So like a keel of a boat that sits in your trochlear groove at the front. So every time you bend and straighten your knee, your knee moves up and down this groove and the two kind of joint surfaces of the articular cartilage will, will move against each other. Um, over time, the cartilage uh, potentially isn't quite as smooth as it, as it once was and that can cause this kind of grating type sensation. But it doesn't mean you're doing any damage at all. It's often um, something that so I, we reassure people about that all the time in clinic that you're not doing any damage. Um, often people don't like it and it can be a bit cringy and kind of you want to try and improve it as you can. Sometimes in rehab, crepitus like that can improve, but quite often it doesn't. But again, it's nothing to worry about. It doesn't mean that your joint is wearing away. It doesn't mean that you're doing any kind of long-term damage. Um, it's joint, knee joints are generally noisy. Um, mm. Some more than others, again, on an individual basis. So, um, yeah, I would definitely reassure people that um, noises from a knee can be very, very normal. Um, I, I, I'm glad quite often that you can't record the noises that your body makes because my shoulders click <laughs> and grind from damage. <laughs> my, 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 my back clicks occasionally, my knees click and, and creak. But I suppose if I've been it's doing sports nervous. since I was... Yeah, I've I've been running and playing sports since I was six, so uh, um, an old car would probably creak and rattle the same, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, you couldn't sneak up on anyone. <laughs> let's let's talk a bit about training and the knees, Jamie, because uh, um, and and the first question we've got relates to all of these endurance athletes: is does endurance sport cause damage to knees? And I think in particular, most people seem to be concerned about whether running is is a bad activity for the knees. Uh, yes, yeah, so again, this is a common question that we get kind of asked all the time and, and still a lot of people in, in kind of physios, doctors are t- uh, um, tell people that they shouldn't be running because it's, it's bad for the knees, whereas um, that's not been proven. And again, hopefully this is something that we can reassure people on 
with podcasts like this really that the the evidence doesn't support the, the kind of the thought process or the myth that that running over a period of time um, is bad for the knees. There was um, a systematic review done, so kind of that's where they analyze a lot of the research. Uh, 2017, I think it was, it looked at the um, progression or likelihood of developing osteoarthritis in runners. Um, they found the prevalence in just recreational runners was um, 3.5%. Um, for those sedentary type patients that don't do any exercise, it was 10 to 11%. Uh, so a higher percentage of osteoarthritis in more sedentary people who don't do any exercise. And clinically, I would definitely, I find that clinically in my practice as well. So um, in my NHS role, I work in the musculoskeletal triage service. So I see a lot of people with osteoarthritis of the knee that are looking for um, management strategies, whether that's rehab, injections, or referrals on for knee replacements. The vast majority are those that um, are either overweight, sedentary, um, and they don't do any exercise. Um, I don't see many kind of long distance runners. I don't see people um, that have done um, kind of been, been runners or recreational runners um, over a period of time. So, yeah, from my experience and the research doesn't support the theory that um, running as a recreational runner will cause osteoarthritis of the knee or cause the knee to wear out effectively. The flip side of that, the same paper did find that there was um, what we call a, a dose-response relationship. So they did find that if you are, if you do a high volume of running, so this paper talked about more than I think it was 57 miles a week. So if you're doing more than 57 miles a week or kind of a high volume, that on the other side might make you a little bit more susceptible. Again, just from that volume of running that, you, that you're doing. Again, the majority of recreational runners probably aren't up around that, that volume. Obviously, they're your elite kind of um, professional runners that might be doing that amount of volume. Um, so if you're doing a, a huge volume, that might mean that you're more susceptible. Um, but for your day-to-day -day kind of runner, um, the evidence doesn't support that theory that um, running alone is going to cause osteoarthritis of the knee. Mm. So those folks who, who end up with knee problems um, are probably going to have had some sort of trauma. I know I, I can. I know at least two of the traumas for my knees were caused by uh, twists where I felt something go. One was a bike crash. One was pushing off the wall in the swimming pool and my foot slipped. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, that felt, I felt a bit of a nip there. And then a few weeks later, um, it was giving me some problems. Um, the third one, I don't know where that came from, but that could have probably been another fall. But I can I can attribute at least two of my cartilage issues to um, the traumas, which involved a shearing or a twisting uh, around the knee area. So, um, and I guess we've all had those, particularly if you play football or rugby when you're younger, you could get damaged then, couldn't you? That then comes back to haunt you a few years later on when you when you're uh, your older kneecaps become a little bit more frail and um, fragile. Yeah, definitely. And um, so I think we're going to talk a little bit about, um, we'll talk a little bit about meniscal problems uh, a little bit later on, probably in more depth. But so if you have a meniscal tear, again, there's that, that can, there's a link with developing uh, issues further down the line. Um, mm. So you can have a traumatic meniscal problem, like you've just described with a twisting type injury. But a lot of meniscal problems just uh, can develop over time. And 
um, degenerative type meniscal lesions are often kind of classified as a normal aging process really and the majority um, of us will develop those as we get a little bit older um, mm. so, yeah, so if you have had say previous meniscal problems with football injuries things like that potentially meniscal surgery again that can mean that your knee is a little bit more susceptible to, to issues with with weight bearing activity further down the line um, and there's definitely a link with um, having say a meniscectomy where they take a bit of the cartilage out or trim it down uh, there's a link with that and then increasing the risk of uh, developing osteoarthritis in the knee uh, later mm -hmm. on now there's a few variables but that will that will impact on that as well so how much cartilage to take out which side of the cartilage and, and things like that have you noticed that there are particular types of endurance training that might increase somebody's risk so for instance i had a, had a few questions on um running at slow paces like a lot of the, the zone two um training that has become very popular with folks recently um i know a lot of cyclists at certain points of the year will do what they call big overgear work on the bike where they're pushing a big gear um maybe up a hill uh, at a very low cadence i'm wondering whether that sort of strain going through the knee joint is going to make them more likely to get injury do you, do you have any views on that um it's, it's not something that i've noticed clinically i don't think with the patients that i would see um i would the classic the classic thing that i will tend to see is where they have this change in volume or intensity of chain training like we mentioned before about um if they're training for an event or kind of increased that volume or change the intensity there's something that we talk about in rehab um, everyone has an envelope of function um, and that's kind of what their body can tolerate or is used to tolerating and if you exceed that tolerance then generally that that can be one of the times that people start to get injured and that can be it can be something simple whether you're just increasing the frequency slightly or increasing the intensity of your, your activity and um, then that's when we tend to find that people um, will will tend to get symptomatic around the knee again whether that Telephemoral pain is a, is a classic example of that. I see a big percentage of my caseload is that, so kind of kneecap type symptoms mm. um, can be can be difficult to settle. But I've not, yeah, I've not noticed specifically like the lower intensity of those one type trainings that would make them more susceptible to, to knee pain. My own personal experiences and observations are that if I've had that patellofemoral pain that you talked about, or in the um, medial parts of my knee, where I know that I've had meniscus um, removed, I do get some tenderness there occasionally. But, uh, and I'd be interested to know whether this is um, unique to me as an individual, where this is fairly common um, in line with things like training volume, is uh, if I, I do a lot of mobility work, but if I focus a bit more work uh, on the foam roller and get into my quads and my glutes, and my lateral quads particularly maybe my adductors so basically all of my all all of my quadricep muscles um if if i spend a little bit more time on those stretching every day and foam rolling that over a period of days or weeks that that tenderness and, and uh, discomfort i'm getting in my knees will diminish and so you know my personal experience is that often those knee dis that knee discomfort comes from just tightness, which is usually linked to an increase in training volume or 
you know, doing a big cycling event where we've ridden for seven or eight days, big mileage. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, and obviously a lot of people that we do use, use foam rollers and it's a debate about what we're, how, what we're um, impacting on with a roller, whether it's more of a pain response, whether impacting on soft tissue mobility is, is a debate, but I'm a big fan of working on that mobility around the hip and the pelvis and soft tissues around the knee. A big proportion of what I do is kind of strength related. And again, that tolerance to load and making sure that people have the underlying strength to be able to cope with the demands of what they're asking their knees or their hips or their ankles to do, whether that is running 5K, whether it's running a marathon or, or cycling or whatever. It's that underlying balance between having that, that strength, the control and the proprioception and linked in with the mobility side as well. So um, you want that kind of training program that, that can address all those different aspects of a tr- um, of you know, that, that you need for, for your training. Mm. That, that's an interesting point about strength training because I, I have a strength training background. It started off in, in team sports where you, where you are deliberately trying to increase the strength and power of the athlete for their sport not necessarily trying to do that in endurance sports and I, I've often promoted this idea that with the right sort of strength training we're not necessarily talking about heavy squats or deadlifts um, but with the right sort of strength training we're, we're trying to build resilience so that the body can cope with the extra volume of sports specific work we're going to do so that we don't get these tightnesses. Yeah definitely um yeah, and I'm a I'm a big advocate for the for, for strength training for for those reasons. Um, again, one of the things that historically I find is, and I'm guilty of this myself sometimes. Runners like to run, and trying to get them to do other bits um, can be challenging at time. Or getting them to fit that in as kind of a part of their weekly training. Um, but I again, I would be promoting looking at the capacity of those big, powerful muscles that are. Are important for running, so your quads, your hammies, your glutes, your calves, um, and again, making sure that, that they um, have that the, the strength and the power to be able to um, cope with the demands of the activity that they're, they're being asked to do. Really. Um, so, yeah, so I would definitely promote strength work as, as part of a, a training program. I'd like to just come, come back to that in a second, Damien, just, just before we move on. Um, had a couple more questions on training. There was there was a couple of people actually asking if the new style of shoes that have these running shoes that have these carbon inserts, whether you've noticed an up, uh, an increasing running injuries as a as a result of wearing those more frequently or just wearing them at all. Yeah, again, it's not something I've come across clinically from the runners that I've seen where I've seen more knee injuries with the presumably it's like the carbon. Um, souls is it that you're talking about yeah i haven't seen yeah um clinically more knee injuries kind of related to them when i see a runner i'll normally kind of get an idea of what kind of shoe that they do wear obviously there's you have a whole spectrum and again this is a whole debate about um from a minimalist shoe to the kind of bigger bigger and bulkier shoe and um whether people should be wearing kind of what type of shoe people should be wearing and again, for me, that's a very individual um, type of debate for an individual patient or athlete of kind of what shoe would be best for them. And what I always, what I don't like people doing, obviously, is going from, say, a bigger bulky shoe and then they want to be go to more of a minimalist shoe. And 
if they go too quickly, then you're going to end up potentially going from a heel striker to a four-foot striker too quickly, and then you'll end up with a raging Achilles tendinopathy or pull your mm-hmm. calf, exhalator strain or whatever, and then it can be a bit of a, a nightmare. So, um, again, yeah, I haven't noticed specifically in terms of the, the these carbon or the new um, footwares from my um, clinical caseload. Um, and, yeah, footwear, I think, is a very individual um, topic and, and people have certain preferences. Um, for me, it's yeah, individual athlete-based, I think. When I'm watching triathletes competing, particularly long-distance triathlons like Ironman, I know that there's been a trend amongst triathletes even further down the uh, the field from the, the sort of the age group winners and the professionals to wear to wear the shoes that are promoted as helping them to gain you know to to get an extra four percent you know like so like typically the vapor fly but I know that all of the main brands have got equivalents now and, and what I observe towards the latter stages of the races is, is not just a deteriorating um, running technique. Um, you know, there's there's a deteriorating control of the whole body. You know, the shoulders are slumped, the hips are dropped. There's no spring out of the ankles. But what I also know is that people who are wearing these shoes tend to be pronating quite noticeably and almost running in a knock kneed fashion. And I wonder that's for those shoes and those individuals. They clearly don't have that support that enables them to maintain good knee tracking. But I wonder if that's um, you know if that's going to cause long-term problems for those folks. Yeah, potentially. And it'd be interesting to see kind of over the next few years from a research point of view, what comes out really about whether there is an increase in certain knee problems or lower limb problems um, mm. specific to these types of shoes. If they are developing, if you've got more of a sort of what we would call a dynamic valgus, so where that knee uh, comes in a little bit more, then that does increase the pressure through the lateral facet of your kneecap. Um, so if you come into valgus, and some people naturally will fall into that tight position, um, but if that again, if you because of the shoe, if 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 that is correct and they come into more valgus, then yeah, it could in theory increase that load through your kneecap joint, which might um, give them a bit more strain and stress through your kneecap joint, uh, potentially predisposing to. What do you think about the idea that um, if you? If you have had knee problems, particularly knee surgery, and you're lacking a bit of cartilage there, but you want to continue running, that wearing something like Hoka's or some of the shoes with a, a, a thicker sole um, can give you a little bit more protection. Is that reasonable? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, potentially. Um, again, anything that does improve or kind of doesn't or reduces impact a little bit, might people might find. It does give them a bit of symptomatic relief and does help the symptoms a little bit. Again, I would probably assess that on an individual basis because some mm. people might be better with a bit of a bigger bulky issue with a bit more support. Other people, they may be better going to a little bit of a, or a shoe with a, a slightly smaller drop just to encourage them to move on to that forefoot a little bit more because that will, if you do go into a forefoot or if you are a forefoot runner, like I mentioned before, you 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 do have less strain through your knee and your hip. So there can be pros and cons to both, I think. Um, again, it would be on an individual basis and dependent on what surgeries they had, what their tolerance to running was and um, mm. what foot they where they'd had in the past. Like I said, you wouldn't want to go from a bigger bulky shoe too quickly to a, a shoe with a smaller drop because 
he'd, he'd probably end up with a just a raging Achilles tendonopathy. Um, yeah, so you're just really just swapping one problem for another, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just taking them out of your clinic and onto somebody else's. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's let's move on to looking after our knees then and being proactive for a moment. So you and I both know that, you know, like you said, the, the cyclists like to cycle, the runners like to run, the triathletes like to do their swim, bike and run. And uh, often their excuse for, for not doing the mobility and strength as well. I need to spend all my time doing this training. But I think we both know that actually, if you if you reduce that training volume by 10% and spend a little bit of time building the resilience of the body, it will probably pay dividends all around. So, if we were going to introduce some simple exercises, can we start with things that people could do at home that don't require any weight or equipment that are simple to do, you know, if we did five minutes every morning and then perhaps move on to what we might do if we had access to a gym or a bit more equipment? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, again, I'm a big believer in trying to get that uh, strength program in place um, in conjunction with normal activity to help as a preventative type measure and again make sure you've got that tolerance and that underlying strength um, again like I mentioned before the main muscle groups for running that I would kind of make sure people have got um, enough control and strength would be glutes, hammies, quads and calf so if we're starting at the top so um, glutes, I'm a big fan of uh, side planks. Uh, it's one of my favourite exercises that I use a lot. So that's known to give good glute med activation, um, which again is really important from a running point of view. So you can either just do a static side plank with a target of 30 seconds. Um, what I always get my runners to try and get onto is a side plank with a, a, a leg lift with the top leg. Um, so you're working both legs. Um, and there's different variations that can make that easier or harder. Um, but a static side plank is a nice, nice place to start for the glutes. Interestingly, the back, the back guys also like that. I did a podcast with Stuart McGill the other day, and that's one of his big three exercises. And it's side planks, um, uh, bird dog, and uh, partial, partial, uh, partial curl. So yeah, yeah, side planks gets a lot of votes. <laughs> yeah, it's a big winner. Um, and that's why I really like it from a knee point of view because you can work the hips and the hips are really important for any knee pain. But doing things like a side plank, it can get you stronger, but it's not going to aggravate the knee pain. Which again, for us, often it's people present, the majority of people I see will present with symptoms. So it's trying to get them working and get them training, but without, um, and getting them as strong as you can without aggravating their, their knee their knee pain that they're coming in with. And a side plank's a nice place to start with that. Um, okay. And then if we're going a little bit lower down, I'm a big fan of deadlifts. So again, you can do that just to body weight at home. If you've got a rucksack or any kind of simple weights, you could do that. So a single leg deadlift um, is an exercise that I use quite a lot. And um, if you're thinking about more of the posterior chain in terms of glute max and hamstrings, can be quite tricky in terms of technique because you really need to make sure that you're getting that hinge through the hip and keeping that mm -hmm. alignment to the spine and then keeping a, a good a good control. Um, but it is an exercise that um, that I do like. Um, I do like a lot. Yeah, I'm a big fan of single leg deadlifts, and I know a lot of other strength coaches are as well. Um, some of whom I've interviewed. 
but I also find that it's it's an exercise itself, limiting, isn't it? So you know, when you start off, finding that control and balance um, is another thing. And I know we might talk about balancing exercises as well. It's something that's good for runners and for longevity. So the, the um, single leg deadlift combines quite a lot of uh, winning combinations. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a nice exercise. Again, it can be quite tricky from like a from a technique point of view, like I said. But I do use that a lot. Um, and then if I was going to pick two other kind of areas, um, squats are very good. We have to be a bit careful with squats. I think there was a couple of questions um, building up into this about technique. Um, mm. And with knee pain, we do have to be careful with squatting. I'm a big fan of squats and I use them on a daily basis because they are very good for strength. Um, so sometimes, again, we just need to adjust the technique. Um, but they are good for getting those quads stronger. Um, when you squat, there's an increase in force through the kneecap by about six times your body weight. So, and that can increase further. I know there's often a bit of a debate about how far your knee should come over your toes with squatting and whether that's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing. Again, it's a bit of a myth that you should completely avoid that. Um, I, it, for me, it would all depend on... Um, on an individual from a biomechanics point of view, how much symptoms they're getting. I haven't got an issue with people squatting with knees going over the toes. If you've got knee pain, again, linking it with kneecap type symptoms, if you get an anterior knee pain and you're squatting, that's where you might need to limit how far your knees go forwards um, because of that's how you will, you can reduce those forces that go through your kneecap joint. This, I, I often wonder whether people get confused with this whole debate about knees over toes. Do they mean knees, if you're looking down, your knees go past where your big toe is? Or do they mean your knees should track in the same line as your toes? So if that's your big, if your big toe's pointing in one direction and your kneecap is pointing out at 11 o'clock or one o'clock, that's also not knees over toes. Um, so so there's two things that I, w- I wonder if folks are, uh, are getting worried about there. Uh, I mean, how far you can squat on the- the way your squats also got there's a there's a large functional contribution from the mobility around the ankle as well, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's a good point about the knees over toes um, in terms of the direction and things like that. For me, it's, a lot of questions I get asked is whether the knees should come forwards, kind of going over the big toe, um, and that's yeah. again there's research that shows that will increase the stresses through the um, through that kneecap joint. Um, and again, like I mentioned before, there's when you squat there is a there's a big increase in joint contact pressure anyway. Um, so that's why often I'm a big fan of squats, but people with knee pain often don't like squatting because it can just aggravate the symptoms. Mm. So that's where we mm. often need to vary that a little bit. So if you've got pain in your knees and you don't like squatting, a couple of simple variations that I'll often try are a sumo squat. So with a wide base of support. So taking your feet mm. wider than your shoulders and having your toes turned out slightly. And then going down into a squat, that can often um, mean that people do manage that a little bit better. Or um, linking in with what you were saying about the ankles, because the ankle does have a big, Im- ankle mobility has a big impact on, on these. If you're restricted in your ankle, then that can limit the body's ability to lower against gravity, and meaning that you're going to get more rotation through your, um, through your lower leg and causing an increase in uh, strain in your knee. So often a, a simple decline squat, so with your heels raised on a couple of books, if you're at home or if you're in the gym, a couple of plates, 
Um, again, that can be a really simple um, set, a different um, technique that can mean that you can get a lot lower and you can squat without pain, which is um, one of the kind of the first or one of the goals that I'll often give people that we have from a rehab point of view if they don't like squatting, right? Well, we need to get you squatting pain-free um, and whether that's changing technique or, or looking at strength in different areas. Yeah, and of course, if you look at the Olympic lifters and, and you know, the the not the athletes that do Olympic lifts, the the, uh, the snatch and the, the clean and, and all that sort of stuff, but people who actually compete in those events, weightlifting shoes do have a heel in them, uh, which helps a little bit with that. And the same for the deadlifters. And I so they, they do get that bit of assistance. Um, so I, yeah. I do I do think about that. I sometimes worry, though, when I see people in the gym wearing running shoes because I just don't think that they provide the stability. So I, I always say to people, if you, if you are going to go to the gym, make sure you wear something like that's got a little bit of lateral stability, like a squash shoe, um, yeah. first, because they, they just sort of might, might help a little bit as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I uh, I also think that squatting is an important exercise because it's a functional exercise, isn't it? It's something we have to do if we're sitting on the toilet, if we're sitting in a low chair, you know, if we're in the car, we have to get up out of that position. And so having the function to be able to do that um, and continue to do it into an old age is something that um, we should all be looking to to prepare for. Uh, because I'm, you know, watching elderly people trying to get out of a car, for instance, is sometimes a sort of painful and laborious yeah. process just because they don't have that leg strength. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of what I talk about or people struggle with with knees, again, going back to the principle of squatting is loaded flexion. So that's bending your knee in a weight-bearing position. So that's where you're going to get that increase in force and, and joint strain, whether it is kneecap or more your, your main knee joint, your tibiofemoral compartment or meniscal problem. Loaded flexion is what people don't tend to like when they first come into seals that's one of the goals that we need to get them back to exactly what you were saying. We need it for day-to-day activity and not just, not just for running and more the high impact type things. So, um, mm. yeah. So you, you, you mentioned um, side planks with or yeah. without the leg lift. Uh, you mentioned single leg deadlifts and squats and a couple of variations. Did you say that there was a fourth exercise that you were going to talk about? Yeah, so the last one, if, if we're thinking about some simple stuff we could do at home, would be um, thinking about the calf complex. Um, so this calf strength is is massive for, for runners. Um, obviously, you need calf strength for that propulsion and to get us moving forwards. Um, so again, any, any knee problem, the calf is always an area that I would be keen to have a look at and assess in terms of capacity. Um, again, linking in with that mobility through the ankle as well and that ability to and move through that forefoot and that big toe joint, which is really important. So your first MTP, that's where we're going to get that push off and that propulsion. So um, two main calf muscles. So you've got your gastrocnemius, which is the muscle that gives your calf its shape, and then soleus, which is the deeper muscle. Um, Both important. Soleus is really important as a power muscle. So soleus works really hard during running. Um, even at slow speeds. So there's research that shows soleus works harder than gastroc by quite some considerable amount. So um, you will work, so, so you could do a simple set, uh, straight leg deadly, uh, sorry, straight leg um, calf raise, for example, is an easy kind of exercise to do. Um, you can do that body weight at home. In theory, 
you might be able to uh, bias soleus a little bit more if you work your calf on a bent knee. Because in theory, if, if your knee is um, bent more than 60 degrees, that switches off gastro and you might get a little bit more soleus bias. So you could mm. do a bent knee calf raise. Um, again, that's a really easy thing to do at home. One exercise I give out quite a lot is something I call a soleus lunge. So you'd go into a static lunge position and then mm. with your lead leg, go into a calf raise at the front. So then you're working mm -hmm. all your major muscle groups, you're working your quads, you're working your glutes isometrically. So you've got static contraction through your quads and your glutes, but then you can get that calf raise, um, trying to buy a soleus a little bit more because of the importance of running, like I was just saying. So um, there would be three nice calf exercises, I think. Single leg calf raise, um, bent knee straight leg, and then a soleus lead. Yeah, I know Alison's a big fan of calf raising. She she has this minimum threshold for runners of three times twenty five single leg, single the leg magic heel number, lifts. The magic number, but, yeah. but with with both the knee straight and bent. But but of course, um, Soleus is also very active during cycling. So if you're triathlete and you and your Soleus isn't that strong, then it's not much of a surprise that you aren't going to feel as bouncy when you get off the bike after a long ride. Yeah, definitely. And again, a bit of the, the fatigue element that kicks in. So um, if, sorry, my screen is just gone off. Um, if, you, uh, if you've done X amount of miles on the bike and then you're getting off um, mm. and you've got the, the car fatigue, then that's going to impact your, your running economy, your kind of performance from when you do get onto the, to the run at the end of a triathlon. So um, maximising that capacity, again, is really important to... to try and minimise any problems from an injury uh, point of view. Okay. I'm thinking we've got about 15 minutes left, Damien. Um, we've covered training and how to look after the knees. We've got an awful lot of questions from people about meniscus issues. So I wonder if we can um, we can maybe do a quick fire here. And if we uh, if we get more questions saying, oh, I need a bit more detail, maybe we can revisit this in a future podcast. So, um, yeah. so let, let's start on pre-surgery. So, um, these are some of the questions. Um, folks being diagnosed with a torn meniscus but not sure whether um, it's best to have surgery or to not have surgery. I, I know that um, perhaps these days there's more of a bias towards trying to um, manage it rather than um, go under the knife. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. So, that, again, this is something I see on a daily basis and have this discussion with people. And the, the goalpost has definitely shifted since I started doing this maybe 15, 20 years ago. The majority of meniscal tears would be treated with an operation, whereas now there's a bit of a phrase that we talk about with meniscal preservation. So it's trying to keep what's in your knee, keep it in your knee, rather than having it kind of taken out wherever, wherever possible. So there's an interesting bit of research done, uh, 2020, I think it was. I, I use this as an example with my... Um, athletes and patients quite a lot so uh, there was a study that's MRI scanned 230 knees that didn't have any pain so asymptomatic patients um, no knee pain and they were put through the scanner the average age of these patients was 44 so on an MRI 97% had some kind of abnormality in the knee but 30% had meniscal tears but no pain whatsoever so it's, it's, it's it's an interesting stat and that kind of 
can often reassure people that, oh, even if I have got a meniscal tear, then it might settle down. So according to that research, 30% of patients mid 40s will have a meniscal tear, but no pain whatsoever. Like I mentioned earlier on, there's different types of meniscal tear. So there's your traumatic tear. So they're generally like the ones we were talking about, where you twist, you turn, you're playing football, your knee suddenly goes. Um, and they're more classically in your younger patients, so someone in their 20s and 30s. Ones with on that category might be a little bit more prone to having surgery. So say if, um, again, it's the type of tear that I would be, it might depend whether someone would definitely have an operation or definitely wouldn't. So something like a bucket handle tear, for example, we would always refer them for an orthopedic opinion um, because they're more likely to they'll flip in the joint and can cause a mechanical block and cause a knee to lock. So if you're getting true locking in a knee, that's a reason to uh, where you need an operation, basically, to un unflip that and either stitch it back down, ideally, or take a bit out. So if you've got a book handle tear where the knee is, is stuck, that's definitely an operation. Um, other traumatic tears, um, so you might get a radial tear where it kind of splits it across the middle. Um, they are quite commonly treated with an operation, but can, there's bits of research coming out that shows that they can, can be managed uh, non-operatively. One of the big things managing these in the initial stages is those mechanical symptoms. So does it lock and does it go straight? So a big thing for us, if we're looking at a knee, we need the knee to go straight. That's a big thing. So getting, um, getting extension in the knee. Then we move on to the, the other type of tear. So that study that I was just talking about, the most common type of asymptomatic uh, meniscal tear in that uh, group was a horizontal tear. So that's basically where it splits the meniscus or the cartilage um, up into, into two sections, really, a top section and a bottom section. So not all the time, but they can commonly be asymptomatic, so not giving pain. Yeah. So generally speaking, if a knee isn't locking, if, it's, if you've got good range of movement, it's not massively swollen and you can function reasonably well, we would always try um, a period of rehabilitation first. And the general guidelines are three months of rehabilitation. The suitability for an operation does depend on what the rest of the knee is like. So if you've got a knee with a meniscal tear but has a lot of underlying arthritis in the knee, the likelihood is you're not going to get any medium to long-term benefits from surgery of that. You might get a little bit of short-term relief, um, but medium to long-term relief, the research shows us that it's just not worth doing now. And the research, kind of, again, that's where we're managing a lot more of these non-operatively. Um, back in the day, they used to, kind of in the 70s and 80s, when we didn't really know the full extent of, um, of taking out a meniscus, they used to basically just take the whole thing out. Some mm. studies have shown us that if you take out the meniscus, the joint contact pressure is increased by about 230%, which is obviously a massive increase in load through the joint. So we want to try and preserve as much of the cartilage as we can. There's been a big push to meniscal repairs. So as opposed to trimming it, it's stitching a bit back down, and that is better because it preserves the cartilage um, uh, in the joint. I've heard a couple of people mention this thing called microfractures. Is, is that something that's outdated or do they still do that? And, and does it have good long-term outcomes? Yeah, so it's a, it is a bit outdated, to be honest. Certainly in the, with the consultants I work with, 
is much less common than it would have been, say, 10 years ago. We still get a few coming through that have had microfractures, um, and that's generally more for articular cartilage. So you'll have two main, which is slightly different to the meniscus. So the meniscus are your two main shock absorbers in the joint. So one on the inside, one on the outside. Then your artic articular cartilage, it's like the lining of the bones. So if you think of a wall that's got plaster on, you know, if you have a decorate a room, nice smooth plaster, mm. over time it might chip off a little bit as the house or the wall gets a little bit kind of um, bit worn through the years. And that's kind of what can happen with articular cartilage. It just becomes a little bit worn and a little bit frayed. And that can give you symptoms, not all the time, but it can. And um, so microfractures where they try and do lots of little drilling to stimulate new cartilage growth. The outcomes weren't fantastic, which is why it's definitely utilised less than it, it, it would have been, again, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Still done, but, but not as readily as it would have been. Okay, so if, if you've been diagnosed with a torn meniscus and your knee's not locking up, um, so you're going to try a period of rehab. So I guess that would involve some uh, visits to the physiotherapist. Uh, are there some strength exercises that you would do that that don't include the ones that you mentioned already, or is that what you get people to do? Is a um, just some strengthening up of the uh, of the muscles that support the knee, and maybe some mobility to just give a bit more range of motion? Yes, the exercises or the principles would be similar. It would depend on how symptomatic they are. Like I said before, so you can have a meniscal tear that doesn't give any pain, which again some. Not everyone's aware of that, but not all you know, not all meniscal tears give pain. And so it depends on, again, the patient's ability to load that knee. So what are they yeah. like? Because, again, if you, when you squat down, the meniscus move backwards and they get a bit of compression. So you, um, your lateral meniscus will move more than your medial, but they will move and you get that uh, compression. So um, knees often, again, they don't like squatting and things. So um, that's our goal is to try and build up to that. But that can take a bit of time. So the meniscus, they don't get a great blood supply. So only the outer third of the meniscus have any kind of blood supply. And that's why tears don't often necessarily heal or they can, they're not always repairable because the blood supply isn't, isn't, um, isn't fantastic. Um, so the, the principles would be the same. It's gradually building up that ability to load the knee with a series mm. of strength work but while also looking at the biomechanics of the whole leg. So again, ankle and foot really important. What's the kneecap moving like? Is that stiff? Which again might impact on the ability to load. What's the hip joint moving like? Um, is the hip stiff, which again is impacting on that ability to, to do what we need to do with the, with the knee. So it's looking at that whole chain. Um, okay. Um, let's move on to those folks who have had surgery. So, um, I had one person saying that after three months, they were still struggling to get rid of swelling and, and getting back to the golf and skiing and full knee bends they were doing before. Is, is three months long enough? My, my experience is from where I have mine that when we were doing yoga, things like sitting on my knees, I had to do with cushions behind my legs, you know, because I just couldn't get that full, um, that full flexion. But, you know, 12 months later, then that's a different story. Yeah, exactly. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't panic at three months. Everyone, again, is slightly different. So it depends on what they've exactly done in the knee, what the condition of the joint is like underlying. So if you've got a joint that was a, it's a little bit grumbly or does have a little bit of wear to the cartilage anyway, if then you, mm. you do take a bit out with a meniscectomy, then they can certainly take a little bit longer to settle down. 
Um, and again, it's just being being patient, being not oh, not trying to do too much too soon. Um, and then, yeah, they, they certainly can take longer than three months. Um, mm. And so, again, and so if you've had, if you if you're a runner or a triathlete and you've had some meniscal surgery, and um, and you you don't have any other. Um, damage or wear to those knees is are the prospects of getting back to your previous levels of fitness pretty high yeah i mean again you'd like to think so it would depend again potentially on what what the exact nature of the surgery is so again a meniscal tear is a bit of an umbrella term because there's lots of different types of tear and there's lots of different um, types of um, um, again if they've repaired it or they've taken a little bit out so as an example, there's something called a root tear, which we often see in middle-aged female runners, that's not great for the joint because that increases your chances of getting arthritis further down the line. So there is a few variables in the type of tear. Um, if they've had it repaired, that is better, like I was saying, because again, you're preserving that meniscal tissue, you're preserving that, that shock absorber, if you like, that, can, that helps with the stability of the knee joint. If you have a big meniscectomy and they take a lot out, again, your joint contact pressures are going to increase. So you, we, the aim is always to get back to kind of the activities that you enjoy. And my, I always say to everyone, we've got to aim for a, a, as good a function as we can get. But sometimes people do struggle a little bit more with that impact type activity. And again, depending on the condition of the joint, how much meniscal tissue is left, uh, their underlying strength, their body weight, previous injuries, lots of different things to take into account. I guess also part of the recovery process would be what level of muscular conditioning you had going into that surgery, wouldn't it? Because if, you, if you'd if you ended up with a knee injury because of a lack of stability in the hip or the quads, um, then creating that stability afterwards is going to take longer than it would do if you were well conditioned going into the surgery. Yeah, definitely. So we all, again, we always promote getting as strong and as fit as you can before any operation, um, whether that's an ACL, which is a big part of my caseload as well. So we do a lot of prehab kind of work with our ACL patients, but same principle for the meniscus. So any, any swelling on a knee and any pain in a knee, you get what we call inhibition in your quads. So your quads basically will just disappear. So especially those medial quads, so the the, um, the quad on the inside of the knee, um, any pain, any swelling, you they disappear within within a few days, within a couple of weeks. You will start to get that inhibition. So we need to try and maintain or kind of build mm-hmm. that up to, to a good a capacity as we can beforehand, because um, again, you, you will get some inhibition afterwards. What about post-surgery for the for the meniscus patients? Um, are there any things that they should avoid in the long term? I mean, you, we talked about squats as a as a way of strengthening the quads, um, but is that something we should avoid once we've had surgery? Should my surgeon said to me, "You can carry on running, but I wouldn't do any fell races." You know, um, heavy-duty downhill running might not be good for your <laughs> knee health. Um, so I try and avoid that. It's, it's quite it's quite a difficult thing not to do in Yorkshire, really, isn't it? Running it's downhill it's hard. Yeah, I try my best. <laughs> yeah, anywhere without a hill around here, other than the canal, is a is a challenge sometimes, isn't it? Um, so yeah, so in terms of post op, a lot of that will depend on what you've had done. So meniscal repair, again, that's where they'll they'll try and stitch the meniscus down and protect and try and protect it. 
that's much more restricted after an operation straight away because they need to protect that repair. So the, our protocol where I work locally, uh, patients will be in a brace for six weeks and potentially I have protected weight bearing, not all the time. The majority can fully weight bear, but their movement would be restricted to 90 degrees for the first six weeks. And we limit any kind of deep squatting for 12 weeks. So it's a long time before you can squat with those again, because you need to protect um, protect that repair and, and minimize the risk of that failing, which does happen. And um, meniscectomies, again, that's just where they'll trim part of the, the cartilage where the tear is. There, there's less restrictions on those. Long term, not as good for the knee, but they are quicker to re, generally mm. recover or kind of get back to what you want to be doing in terms of um, building strength. Um, so the goal again is to get back to loading the knee as much as you can tolerate with squats and um, exercises like that. I like the leg press. So if people have a gym, leg press is really nice because you can do it on one leg and you can bias how much load goes through the joint, whether that's in a really short range. So you might even just work it in 20, 30 degrees to start with. Um, and you can dictate or kind of play around with how much weight goes through. And it's really nice to see the progression over a few weeks and how um, how they can mm. how they progress in terms of range and also uh, movement. I'd, you'd hope, I suppose, wouldn't you, that anybody who'd had knee surgery would be having um, guidance from somebody like yourself anyway, so they wouldn't be doing it purely on their own uh, motivation yeah, drive. Yeah, definitely. So you should yeah, always kind of get individual advice. And they're kind of just generic kind of points. But um, if you have a meniscal repair, there should be kind of a local protocol that, that you should be following and you should always get referred to a, a physio back from your surgeon really to get to guide you um first of all getting over those first few weeks but then guiding you back to the activities that you want to do i'm conscious of the time damien i know you've got to uh, dash off soon so i've got a couple of last questions these are related to supplements um i know somebody said um after um many skeptomy off people with osteoarthritis do any of the regeneration treatments i, I didn't know what mfat was i think PRP is like um, uh, well plasma re replacement um, protein. Yeah, plasma, is it plasma rich protein is uh, yeah. PRP. So again, so it's not available on the NHS in most trusts. Certainly not available where, where I work locally. I've seen a few privately that, um, that have that have had PRP, um, and the the results have been a bit mixed. To be honest, there's a few treatments like this, so similar to visco supplementation which is a type of in, injection, so like um, hyaluronic acid. Um, again, not generally available on the NHS, but people do um, do pay for it. Um, and I have people that have done really well and other people that haven't done really well. And again, that's generally why they're not globally available on the NHS, because the results are still a bit mixed, still a little bit, um, mm. and it's kind of building up in terms of, um, how available things like that will be. I guess a lot of these things as well. Uh, there's, there's a placebo effect, isn't it? If you particularly these treatments, if you had to pay for it privately, uh, yeah. you, you're probably going to believe that it's working anyway. Or want to believe <laughs> yeah, that it's working. Uh, and what about things like um, collagen, which has uh, been seeing a, an upswing in popularity, or things like shark cartilage? Do do any of those supplements that you might ingest? actually get to the uh, the joints or are they mostly absorbed in the stomach and don't really have a lot of impact? 
Yeah, I would definitely be edging more towards that. I mean, there's a few supplements out there, like the ones that you've mentioned. So, glucosamine, people we ask, we can get asked about um, with chondritin. Um, interesting. So, the NICE guidelines, so the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, um, updated their guidelines last October um, for kind of general arthritis. And um, the use of glucosamine was not supported in that um, for the NICE guidelines. Just the evidence wasn't strong enough to support it. Mm. Again, going over the last few years, glucosamine was generally the one if we were going to recommend anything. That was the one that I would have recommended. But again, at the moment, the NICE guidelines are saying that the evidence just isn't strong enough to support it. Um, turmeric is quite popular at the moment with people. Um, mm. In theory, it's um, an anti-inflammatory component to turmeric. So again, some people say that it works really well with people not massively so i do find the supplements like this are very much on an individual basis and and some people like them some people don't get any benefits the evidence is not fantastic yeah i i, I use turmeric and uh, curcumin and all of those i think there's definitely sort of anti-inflammatory properties but i just have them as part of a healthy diet as a nice natural spice as much yeah. as anything to uh, protect my knees um so as we sign off, Damien, if there's one or two pieces of just overarching advice you can give to folks, if they want to keep exercising as long as possible into their life um, and looking after their knees, which seems to be the, uh, some of the biggest limiters for folks, um, is, it, is it possible to give a couple of main pieces of advice, maybe one for people who've got healthy knees currently and one for folks who've had some some sort of issues or surgery? Yeah. Um, so healthy knees... I mean, generally, my goal is always to try and keep people running and keep people active. Don't, don't. Again, I'd always kind of be keen to promote that running standalone is not going to wear your knees out as long as you're kind of mindful with moderate, moderate, um, kind of not excessively going crazy with mileage and things like that. Running um, on its own is not going to wear your knees out, but um, working on strength and mobility of kind of those joints above and below the, the knees always really good. And with some of the exercises that, that we've talked about in, in the podcast. Um, not necessarily maybe an issue for the, the group that are listening to this, but maintaining a healthy weight, really important for knee problems. So the more weight we carry around, the more weight goes through our knee joints. So we load those joints a lot more. So staying active, staying fit, healthy diet. Um, and again, I talk about a lot with my patients, 80% weight loss is diet 20 percent exercise so really yeah, absolutely from my point of view um so yeah staying active staying strong healthy diet kind of key principles really um, and for those that have had knee problems in the past um i'd be biased and say getting an opinion with a physiotherapist to have a look at your knee um see what's going on and to get an individual kind of tailored program from a strength perspective, from a mobility perspective. Um, and that, again, would relate to what specific injury they've had in the past, what interventions they've had, whether that's joint injections, surgery, and um, whatever. But um, again, it, it's they just might have to be modify things a little bit more in terms of volume and intensity of activity. Okay, Damien, that's brilliant. I know we could have probably had five or six podcasts out of this, couldn't we, and <laughs> treated each one of those particular.
particular areas as a, a topic, a discussion topic in itself. But um, I'm sure we'll get some demand for you to come back on the show and talk about things in a bit more depth. But for now, Damien Buck, thank you very much for being on the show. Appreciate your time and, um, and your no. knowledge and experience today. Yeah, no problem. Enjoyed that. It's been good. Thanks, Sarah. Well, I'm sure we'll have a few questions for you. So um, maybe we'll get some uh, social media handles and, and everything that people can find you on so they can uh, maybe have a discussion privately. Maybe we'll get a few new patients. Yeah, yeah, you never know. You never know. Um, but yeah, was that all right? That's kind of sound. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, Nothing David. You wanted. Yeah, thank you. I'll just sign off now and then we'll... Uh... Yeah. Excellent. Thanks again to Damien for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. Hopefully, you have enough information now to work with to keep your knees healthy for at least a few more years to come. And to make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go into iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and click the subscribe button. And while you're there, If you would be good enough to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would be very, very grateful. You can find a link for that in the show notes below as well. Earlier in the episode, I said that I was going to mention the benefits of our membership program. So here we go. You get access to a growing library of training plans for a whole range of endurance events covering triathlon, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, Xterra, Grand Fondo cycle races, ultra trail runs, marathons, as well as more focused plans to help you build mobility, strength, as well as boosting specific aspects of your fitness like functional threshold power for the bike or critical swim speed in the pool. We also have monthly workshops which are exclusive to SWAT members and those same members can benefit from free access to our educational workshops on topics such as nutrition, sleep, strength and many more. And we also have a growing range of discounts on partner products which I use myself and I believe in and for which I do not get paid to promote. So if you'd like to learn more about these and access the member-only benefits which we have reduced the price on this year to make it affordable to everybody so it's now £30 a month. That's less than £1 a day. You can find more benefits by visiting my website, simonward.co.uk, and then click on the link that says Work With Me. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you'll find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as The Triathlon Coach or Triathlon Coach. So that's it. Thank you for listening. Look after those knees, and I'll see you on the next episode.